Good morning. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. You stole it right out of my mouth. Merry Christmas, everybody. Okay. I'll have you know, this is the first white Christmas I've experienced. Like, I've, I'm not, like it's all been fairy tale until today. I came in, it wasn't snowing. I looked out the windows, it's snowing. It's Christmas Eve. I'm going to count it as a white Christmas, okay? Uh, maybe you're like, Rob, that's, that's lame. But I have never experienced a white Christmas, so it's okay. Uh, it's pretty cool. It'll be great if the snow was gone next week. It was good for today <laughs> and tomorrow, but it's still here. So, hey, before we get into uh, the sermon today, I want to pray for us that God would speak clearly to our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christmas. God, thank you that during this time of the year, all over the world, people are willing to listen to this incredible story. They're willing to hear that there's a God that loves them. And so this morning, my prayer is that through your Holy Spirit, you would put on our hearts and our minds what you want us to remember and help us to forget what you want gone. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I've got a question for you. Uh, raise your hand if you would. Don't feel bad. Like, it's not prideful for these few moments. Raise your hand if you would consider yourself a patient person. Okay, a couple, couple of you. A little more courageous in the first two services. I like it. Okay, raise your hand if you would consider the person seated next to you to be patient. Husbands, raise your hands. Raise your hands. Hey, uh, I have a quiz for you just to see if patience is something that you have. Okay, so I want you to picture that you're in a drive through line or at a toll booth and the car in front of you is at the window, and they are having a very extended, long, detailed conversation with the person behind that window. I want to know, what is your response to situations like that? Is it A, that you are happy that they're experiencing community at this toll booth or this window, and you are even considering launching a discipleship group with them because it just looks great? <laughs> okay, maybe you're just, Lord help you. Uh, B, uh, your dream of thing, you dream of things that you'd like to say to them. You'd love to be able to say these things, but you remember, hey, I'm a preacher, I can't say that. Uh, but I'd love to say these things to somebody, but you know you'll never say it out loud, so internally you struggle. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you're C. You attempt to drive your vehicle between the other guy's car and the window <laughs> because you've been waiting long enough, and it's your turn. So anybody, any Cs? Anybody willing to be a C? What, most of you are Bs, right? Yeah, just sit and silently suffer because you're patient. But waiting does not come naturally to us. It's really difficult. I don't know if you remember what the Apostle Peter wrote when he wrote uh, one of his letters. He said this. He said, do not ignore this one fact, beloved. My friends, you need to know that the Lord, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years to us. And a thousand years is like one day to him. The Lord's not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but he's patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so God's view of patience. Now I heard of an economist who read this verse and got excited. And he prayed this prayer. He said, Lord, is it true that a thousand years for us is just like a single day for you? And the Lord replied, yes, that's, that's true, child. Then a million dollars must be just like a penny to you, right, God? Yes, that's absolutely true. Well, Lord, can you give me one of those pennies, please? And the Lord said, absolutely. Go over here and wait for a minute. <laughs> Let it sink in. Merry Christmas. Look, waiting can be humorous. Okay, it can be fun, and honestly, when other people are impatient, I find it very funny, all right? That's like, I probably shouldn't, I should, Lord, please help them become a whole person and all that, but I just laugh, because when they're losing their mind over a drive through window, or they're getting angry and laying on the horn, I find it funny, and unless I'm the one doing it, then it's not funny, but waiting can be really funny, and then there are other times in your life, if you're like me, where waiting can get really difficult, 
And it's not so much lighthearted. All of a sudden, having to wait and display some patience begins to get really heavy on your heart and on your mind, and it's not easy to deal with. Right? Different situations, like the single person who's been praying every day for, for God to send them a spouse. Praying and praying and praying, and they're just waiting and waiting and waiting. Waiting's not humorous in that situation. Waiting uh, for a couple, a childless couple who's been praying for years, Lord, please give us a child. And they've just waited, and it's heavy, and it's difficult. Or the person who wakes up every day and longs to go to a job that they're passionate about, that they love, that they feel like is making a difference, but instead, every day, they have to get up and go to a job that they don't like anymore, and they're just waiting for an opportunity to be able to do something that they enjoy. Or the little kid who feels awkward because every day he's picked on and he longs for the day when he might get picked first on the playground. Or the person who wakes up every single morning depressed and they're longing for the day when they just wake up at least one day where they don't want to die. Or the people of color in this country who are longing for the day when their children will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. Or elderly people who are sitting in a nursing home with no visitors just waiting for the day when they can finally pass away. Or the parents who sit up late at night waiting and praying for their child to start making better decisions with their life. Or the broken-hearted spouse who wants their, their husband or their wife to start making better choices. And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. All of a sudden, waiting gets really serious. And I don't know about you, but I've sat in many rooms with chairs like these, waiting rooms in my life. And these uncomfortable chairs that you sit in, and you're just waiting for different things. I remember as a young boy, sitting in chairs just like this in a hospital. Every day after school, getting picked up and going and sitting in this hospital, waiting, waiting, and waiting, as my grandmother, the woman who had adopted me when my family went through a very dark season, and my uncle and my grandmother had adopted us, and we sat every single day after school for an entire school year in elementary school, waiting for the day when she would pass, because she was sick. I remember sitting in a waiting room like this numerous times at treatment facilities where my mom, who'd made poor decisions, had to go to a drug rehabilitation center, and I'd sit every day in a waiting room like this, just wanting to see my mom. 90 days here, 120 days here. I remember sitting in a seat just like this, uh, when a moment of joy got a little bit scary when my wife was giving birth to our first child, the doctor said, hey, we have to have an emergency C-section. And so they rush her into a room and they make me sit down and wait. And I remember what just a few moments felt like an eternity. And I just wanted to know what was going on. I've sat in many waiting rooms holding the hands of many hurting people, praying with them, just being with them, as they long for and they wait for answers to very difficult questions. And so it can get frustrating sometimes in our lives where waiting, which is one of the hardest things that we do in life, and we go to the Bible and over and over and over again we read where God, the creator of the universe, the one who can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, to whom he wants, the one who's all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, that God tells us to wait. Over and over and over again in Scripture you read, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. It says, wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the earth. But why is waiting so difficult? Why is it so hard? Why is it so painful? You see, we learned something in the Christmas story that maybe waiting's more of a gift than we thought it was. Maybe we can learn some things about waiting, the waiting room of life, from the Christmas story. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab the one that's in the seat in front of you, and that's our Christmas gift to you. Keep that Bible. You can write in it, mark it up. We're going to be introduced to two people as we close out this Christmas series. Uh, two people, Simeon and Anna, and we're going to learn what waiting looks like 
because of the Christmas story? What can we learn from this encounter? We're going to start in verse 22 where it reads this way. Dr. Luke writes, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So this purification process for Mary, uh, seven days after a woman gave birth, she was considered unclean. And for 33, 33 days after that, she couldn't be around people, had to go through a purification process. And so she's going to do this. In addition to this, when they come into the temple, they're going to dedicate Jesus. We do this around here a lot. We have family dedications where we come in and people that have a child, they dedicate that child to the Lord. They just say, hey, Lord, the future of my child is yours. Whatever you want to happen, I pray that it'll happen. That's what they're doing with Jesus. And Jesus had to come in and he went through all the same rituals, all right? I slipped up in first service and called it persecution when I meant to say circumcision, but they're kind of the same. He had to go... <laughs> And he had to be circumcised eight days after he was born. And, and so they're going through all these processes, and they come in, and they have to make an offering. And that offering for wealthier people would have been two lambs, one for the burnt offering, one for the sin offering. But not so wealthy people, which is where at this time in their life, Mary and Joseph are, they could offer two, uh, two pigeons or turtle doves. So that's what they do. They offer one for the burnt offering, one for the sin offering. But here's what I love about this part of the story, because it kind of stands out. It's, it's, it's behind the text. You have two young parents who have had a whirlwind of a year. Okay? Angels visiting them, you know, the Holy Spirit, and, the, and all this stuff happens, and now the baby's born. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, and now here they are, and they're bringing the child uh, to the temple, and now they're just kind of like overwhelmed by it, and yet in the midst of what would easily be an excuse to say, let's just get home, let's just get home, they wanted to be driven by their values and their belief systems. Their love for God determined their decision-making and parenting. They allowed what God said to determine the type of parents they were going to be right from the start. And I love this. And so now they come into the temple and they encounter someone. Verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. And here's our word, waiting. Continually waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So we meet this guy, Simeon. And he's been there waiting and waiting and waiting. Because he was told by the Holy Spirit he would not die until he saw the Messiah come. So he knows it's coming. He's got this hope, and so his waiting is not in complete despair. So he's sitting here and he's waiting. Okay, every day he's watching families come into the temple and make sacrifices. Every day he's watching people come in and look for hope. And he knows that day's coming. because He knows he's not going to die until that day comes. He believes that, so his waiting is kind of bathed in hope. A hope that the Messiah would come long-expected Jesus would arrive. So he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. And he watched his people become oppressed and go through difficulty. As a matter of fact, the time period between your Old Testament and your New Testament, it's called the intertestamental period. It's a period of 400 years where God was silent. No prophets were raised up. No angels. No new discussions between God and his people. No, no, no messages from God whatsoever. And so he's watching. He knows the history. We have been waiting and waiting and waiting for this good news. And Simeon is there waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally that day comes, and you just got to imagine this guy is so excited. But he's not the only one that's been waiting. You jump down to verse 36, and we meet someone else. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. 
She was advanced in years and having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84, she never left the temple. Never left. Instead, while waiting, she worshiped by fasting and prayer night and day and coming up at the very hour that they brought Jesus in, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him to all who were, there's the word again, waiting. They were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So now you've got uh, Simeon and Anna both having spent most of their life waiting. And I don't know about you, but I feel like sometimes I can relate to them. I feel like there's been these seasons of my life that have just felt like they've gone on forever and I'm waiting and I'm waiting for what's next and I'm desiring what's next. And they felt this day in and they felt this day out. And what Anna does is she says, during my waiting, I'm going to worship because what happens, friends, we get so used to waiting, we miss what we're looking for. That's what happened with the rest of the world. For 400 years, they've been waiting for a Messiah. He shows up and they don't recognize him. They got so comfortable waiting that they missed what they were looking for. Anna didn't want that to happen, so she kept her mind and her, her heart focused on God by worshiping. While I wait, I'm going to worship, because when that time comes, I want to be ready. Now, what's interesting about her, too, is all of this waiting didn't create despair in her, but I don't know if you're like me, but when I think about 400 years of God not talking, that can create some despair. But I want you to know this. Just because God was, ab- God was silent does not mean he was absent. He might have been silent, but he wasn't missing from the picture. He watched as the Romans came in and began to persecute and tax his people and press down on them. But God knew that at the perfect moment, he would send Jesus. Not the moment we always think, not the moment we would have picked in history, but at the absolute perfect moment because, and we know this because over and over and over again, when you read your Bible, God always shows up at the perfect time. He always follows through with what he said he was going to do, and he does it at the exact moment that it needs to get done to have the impact he desired it to have. I mean, when you, they would have known all these stories, but when you flip through the pages of this incredible book, the Bible, you learn about people like Abraham. Abraham and his wife uh, wanted a child so bad, and they waited years and years and years, and they got beyond childbearing years, and they'd given up hope, and then God shows up and says, hey, you're going to have a child. And he's excited. He's like, man, God, that's incredible. That's awesome. And God says, but you're going to wait. 75 years old when God tells him he's going to have a child, and it's 24 years later until the child's born. They would have known that the Israelites were held captive by the Egyptians, and God had told them, you're going to be delivered one day, but it took 400 years for them to be delivered from captivity in Egypt. And when they were delivered, a man named Moses shows up on the scene. He says, I'm taking you to what God is calling a promised land. And it was exciting, and it was fun, but then God said, but you're going to wait. And it's going to take 40 years of wandering in the desert before you get to get to that promised land. I mean, even in your New Testament, Jesus, when you study the life of Jesus, after he resurrects from the dead and he's getting ready to ascend to the right hand of the Father, he gathers all of his disciples and he says to them, your only job in life is to go make disciples. Now go. And as they turn to go, he says, but wait. You can't go until the Holy Spirit comes. I can't have you guys messing this thing up. I need the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. Stay put until the Holy Spirit comes. Again, having to wait over and over and over again. And here's what you learn when you study this idea of waiting throughout the whole Bible. Waiting was important because it revealed where the faith of the person having to wait was. See, when we're in seasons of waiting, what we naturally want to do is control the situation. We want to do anything we can to end the waiting. But what God wants us to do is come to the end of ourselves and lean into him. And at that moment, when we come to the end of ourselves... We rely completely on him. He begins to move in our lives. This is why when you read your Bible, the concept of faith and the concept of waiting are so closely related that sometimes they're interchangeable. 
all throughout the Old Testament, for years and centuries and decades, they're waiting for a Messiah, waiting for a Messiah, waiting for a Messiah, so much so that when he arrived, only the people that had kept their eyes fixed on God were ready to see him, like Simeon and Anna. Now, in this moment, I want you to picture what we're about to read as Simeon gets to meet the one he's been waiting so long to meet. Listen to these words in verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms. Just picture that for a minute. Don't, don't read past that. That moment happened. This man that had waited his whole life for this moment actually held that child in his arms. And he picked him up, and he blessed God, and he said this, Lord, Lord, now you're letting your servant die in peace. Now I can depart in peace according to your word. You said it, and then you did it like you always do. My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And then it says, when Mary and Joseph heard this, they marveled at what was being said. Now they have to marvel. They're marveling at something, not what the angel had told them. It's an add-on. See, when the angel told them, you're going to conceive, you're going to have a child, you're going to name him Jesus, all that had happened. And I can't imagine how much their mind's blown at that moment. Like, man, God said all this would happen, then it happened, and here we are. Now they bring him to Simeon, and Simeon now adds to it. And he says, man, I've not, he never said, I've seen this baby. I've seen Mary's son. What did he say? No, God, I've waited and waited and waited. Now I'm holding this baby in my arms and I see your salvation. I see your plan coming together in this child. Everything we've longed for and hoped for and waited for all in this child. And he's overwhelmed in that moment. The way I wish we could still get overwhelmed at Christmas. The significance of this moment was not lost on him. He said, God, this is the way the Gentiles will be saved and the Jews will be saved. All the world will have access to you because this child has been born. But he wasn't done there. He then looked over at Mary in verse 34 and he says this, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, he looked right at her, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your soul, Mary. And, that, and so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Meaning, yeah, this is a beautiful moment, Mary. This is unbelievable. Salvation is here because Jesus is born. He's here. This is incredible. But what's beautiful now will not always be easy. He's going to be rejected. People are going to have extreme opposition toward him. They're going to hate him. They're going to abuse him. They're going to reject him. Ultimately, they're going to kill him. And like any mother would feel, like a sword piercing your heart. He said, this isn't going to be easy, Mary, but this is the greatest news the world has ever known, but it won't be easy because when it's all said and done, it's going to reveal where people's hearts are, where their lives are, where their devotion is pointed. Do they follow him or do they not? Are their eyes fixed on God? Will they see him or will they miss him? When John wrote his birth account, he said, and a light came into the darkness, but the darkness did not recognize it. And he's saying, the light that comes into the darkness will reveal what's going on in the dark. And in that moment, there's no hiding from truth. This is the life of your child. See, when I read that, I'm like, man, well, Merry Christmas. Let's go open presents, right? It's like, oh, that's hard. But what, what is interesting is some of the incredible lessons you learn that I think Christmas would bring hope into your life when you sit in the waiting room of life. Seasons of extreme difficulty where you're waiting on God to move or to just tell you something or give you some hope. I think Christmas can be that hope. Some of the lessons we learn is this. Christmas gives us a humble confidence 
This beautiful story gives us a very humble confidence. Let me tell you why I say it this way. Uh, Don Lamb is one of the elders here at our church. And um, when, again, this is another mishap, but it was funny. In first service, I said, hey, when I was pregnant with our second, I said, wait a second. I was never pregnant. When my wife was pregnant with our second child, it was a, we found out it was going to be a little girl, and I was scared. I was like, I'll deal with the boys. But a girl? Um, uh, man, I got nervous. And so I would talk to people that had daughters. Don has four of them. I was like, yeah, how'd you do it? How are you doing it? What's going on? And he said the prayer that he would pray for his daughters all the time was this. I want them to have a humble confidence. Humble confidence. As I reflect on the story of Christmas this year, that's what I think God wants for all of us. Humble because of this. Think about the Christmas story. It's beautiful and it's awesome and it's fun. And we eat cookies and we look at lights and we sing songs and we gather together and we have traditions. Some of them good, some of them really weird, but we all have traditions, right? And Christmas can be this joyful, incredible time. But why did it have to happen? Why was he born? He's born because of your sin. Your sin is so dark and so bad that it separated you from the God that created and loved you. So he had to send his son to live the life you couldn't live. If that's not humbling, I don't know what is. That God had to send Jesus because your sin was too much. You could not overcome your sin on your own, so the baby had to be born. And he was born, and that's a humbling thing, but it's a confident thing. Why? Because we know he was born. We can trust he's coming back. Now we live in between that. We, we know he's born, but we can trust he's coming back. I love the way Tim Keller articulates this. He says the gospel, I would say Christmas. Christmas is this. Think about it this year that we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. My sin is so much darker than I even think it is. It's done so much more destruction to my life and the lives of other people than even I can imagine. My sin is dark and bad. However, at the very same moment, because Jesus was born, I'm more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. Like, I want to be known and loved and cared for. That's a humble confidence. Because I need it because my sin separated me from him. But I'm confident because he sent his son for me. Friends, maybe this is all you need to hear at Christmas this year. God loves you so much, he counted you worthy enough to send his son to die. Think about that. On your worst day, on your darkest day, there's hope because of Christmas. The next thing Christmas, the Christmas story gives us is this. Christmas gives us a patient trust. The ability to be patient and trust that he will do what he said he's going to do. Uh, Henry Nouwen is a very famous Christian author. He died back in 1996, but he wrote many books. And in one of them, he talks about the relationship uh, between trapeze artists. You have the flyer and the catcher. All right? The flyer lets go of the trapeze, the catcher catches them. And he says it's really important that they have a really good relationship. And I'm thinking, yeah, absolutely. If I'm a flyer, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make the catcher love me. right? Because at some point, I'm letting go, and he better catch me. And if I've got him upset, he may just, oops, uh, I didn't catch him. But he says it's so important they have a good relationship. As a flyer swings high above the crowd, he writes, the moment comes when he lets go of the trapeze. He has to let go. And then there's this moment when he's no longer holding onto the trapeze, but he's not yet caught. He's not yet caught by the catcher. And there's this moment of waiting. And that moment of waiting, he describes it beautifully. It feels like an eternity, but the flyer must remain patient and calm, and not move. And I love the way he describes it. He says this, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. He can't. This is what he learned as he studied this. He must wait in absolute trust. The catcher will catch him, but he has to wait. His job is not to flail about with anxiety, because in fact, if he does, it could cost him his life. His job is to remain perfectly still, 
and trust and wait for the catcher. And waiting is the hardest work of all for the trapeze artist. And I would say, I think waiting is the hardest thing we do in this life. We're going from one season of life to the next and waiting with uncertainty. We don't know what's going on. And we're, we're looking at Jesus came, but he hasn't returned yet. And this world is dark and difficult. And I've gone through pain and suffering. And I've sat in the waiting room of life. And it's been nothing but hard. Theologians call this the already and the not yet. It's the already and the not yet. Jesus has already come, but he has not yet returned. We already have hope, but our hope has not yet been realized. The already and the not yet. We live in the middle of the already and the not yet. We already know Jesus, but we have not yet gone to heaven, right? So we have to live in the tension of the already and the not yet. I love it because there's coming a day, think about this, just think about this. There's coming a day when the emotion of hope will no longer be necessary. You won't have to hope. You'll be in face-to-face with Jesus at some point, and hope won't be needed. Your hope will be realized. But when we live in the already and the not yet, one of the most important things we have to get us through this, is hope. And so how do you live in the already and the not yet and hold on to your hope? I'll give you two things. I learned from Simeon and Anna. Here's, here's one of them. There's a difference between waiting on the Lord and waiting around. It's a big difference between waiting on the Lord and waiting around. Waiting on the Lord is active. Waiting around is passive. Think about it this way. I've had many conversations with people that you know, sit in the waiting room with them, Right? And they'll tell you, man, financially, we're just, we're bankrupt. We've got debt up to our eyeballs. Um, we don't do a budget. We don't save. We don't ever talk about money. It's just horrible, but we're just waiting on the Lord to provide. And you think, what? Well, hold on, what? That's waiting around. That's waiting around for God to do something for you. And God has actually told us, because of Jesus, he wants you to do things here and now. That Jesus said about himself in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. That's in this life, friends. That's right here and right now. Jesus has plans for your life. We've said this through this whole series. If you're not dead, he's not done. He wants to use your life. He wants to bless your life. He wants to use you to be a blessing to other people. You see, when we live in the already and the not yet, we wait on the Lord. We don't wait around. And when we wait on the Lord, we carry a hope with us. See, your job, friends, is this. You sit in the waiting room of other people's lives now because you have this hope and you've encountered this hope, and you know that he's going to do what he said he was going to do, and so you sit next to them, and you pull them close, and you tell them things like this. Cancer does not have to be the end of your story. Divorce doesn't have to define you. That difficulty or that struggle that you've gone through, there's hope. I know this is hard, and this is a season of waiting, but I'm right here next to you in the waiting room, chair next to chair. I'm holding your hand. I have this hope because Jesus was born. I have this hope because every year I celebrate Christmas, and it reminds me that into a dark world, he's shown a bright light, and I get to bring that light to you in your season of waiting. Waiting's never going to be easy. But there's a difference between waiting for the Lord and waiting around, and here's what I've learned. The difference is this. Because of Christmas, what I do now while I wait for heaven matters today. What I do every day, waiting for heaven. I can't wait. Waiting for heaven. But because of Jesus... Everything you do right now has significance and it matters. You sit in the waiting room of life with people and bring them hope. Next thing I learned from Anna and Simeon is this. What happens to you while you wait is as important as what you're waiting for. You see, for hundreds, centuries, they were waiting for this Messiah to show up. And they'd got so used to waiting, they missed what they were looking for. They missed it. And the the light shone brightly into this world, and they couldn't see it. They didn't see it. They got so used to waiting around. 
But what we learn about Anna is this. While she was waiting, she worshiped. She continually prepared her mind and her heart so that when he came, she'd be ready to see him. And we live in that same tension in the already, not yet, now. We worship every Sunday morning. We gather together, and we take communion together, and we hear from God's word together, and we sing songs together, not just because it's rituals. We don't just do it because we're doing it. We're doing it because our heart and mind needs to be reminded to keep our eyes focused on him so when he returns, we're ready. When he comes back, we're ready. That our waiting is more like worship as we wait on the Lord. Every year, I like to remind myself what I'm waiting for, and so I'll sit and just read this by myself at Christmas. But I want to read it to you. You've heard me read this time and time again. I've sat in many living rooms with hurting people. People that have lost people they love dearly. People that don't know if they have hope. I have to sit next to them and go to this passage that reminds us what Christmas introduced us to. And so tonight and tomorrow, I want this passage to remind you what Christmas brought into this world. You can close your eyes and receive this, or you can keep your eyes open. Don't make it weird. Whatever it is, I want you to be able to focus. Here's the hope of Christmas, friends. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. I love this. Because of Christmas, one day he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you. that in the dark seasons of waiting, we can have hope. You shone a light so bright into this darkness that it changed the course of history. Father, I thank you that as we look to our future, we have something to hope for, to long for, that we can wait with purpose. And as we wait, you will shape us and mold us and change us and use us. And God, that is beautiful. We want to pause this Christmas as we reflect on the words of Scripture and just thank you because you're good. And we offer you this prayer in Jesus' name.